This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind-the-knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind the knife resources like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm Nina Clark. I'm a general surgery resident currently in my research years at University of Washington, and I'm one of the surgical education fellows this year with Behind the Knife. We're working on a couple of episodes that were really inspired by some recent work looking at the experience of trainees who are underrepresented in medicine. In particular, there was a stat news article that came out last year looking at the experience of Black residents that emphasized the discrimination that can lead to resident attrition. This was supported by a JAMA surgery article from 2018 that showed high attrition rates among underrepresented and female surgical residents. Both of these will be linked in our show notes. To help us tackle some of these topics today and kick things off, I'm joined by Dr. Minerva Romero Arenas. Dr. Romero Arenas is an endocrine and general surgeon at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital and an assistant professor of surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College. She completed her fellowship in oncologic surgical endocrinology at MD Anderson and her general surgery residency at Sinai Hospital of Baltimore. In 2017, Dr. Romero became a founding member of the Latino Surgical Society, an organization committed to the development and advancement of Latino surgeons throughout the United States. Also joining me today is Dr. Alina Serrano. Dr. Serrano is a resident currently in her research years at the University of Washington, working with the Surgical Outcomes Research Center on multiple projects in the health equity space. Dr. Serrano and Romero Arenas, we're so excited to have you join us for this Behind the Knife episode. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you. I'm a longtime fan. Thank you so much, Nina. 
Awesome. So we'll get started. Dr. Romero, I would love for you to give our listeners just an idea of the current landscape and what you think are the main issues that face trainees who identify as underrepresented in medicine and particularly among Latino residents. Definitely. I think there are many issues that are underrepresented in medicine residents face, as well as specifically Latino residents. As you mentioned earlier, we have found that these residents are at higher risk of attrition, meaning they are leaving their programs at higher rates than other residents. But also in some unpublished data, we've actually seen that they're also at higher risk of being dismissed. Both Black and Latino uh, residents are facing higher dismissal from their training programs. I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to this. And these are factors that we see across pathways to medicine. So there is an element of socioeconomic disadvantages. There's also an element of what we call the hidden curriculum in medicine. There's a lot of uh, cultural implications and sort of unspoken rules that perhaps we have to take extra time to learn and are not um, taught uh, sort of to us by generations upon generations of um, other maybe family members or family friends. So lacking some of those privileges can certainly have an impact. I would say that the numbers really demonstrate that there is a very small number of residents. And a lot of times this leads to a lot of isolation in an already highly stressful environment. Having that isolation can really lead to clinical depression. It can also lead to a uh, mentality that perhaps one cannot speak up for issues that we're facing. It can also lead to a sort of tokenism where um, everybody has uh, uh, perhaps a misunderstanding that they are the sole representative for all Latino residents. And it was certainly something I would say I carried when I was a medical student, uh, this sort of weight that if I failed, then they were never going to let anyone in after me. Um, and I think that that's something that um, can can bring a lot of um, burden. Um, most of us are able to turn that into a factor that motivates us to sort of push through and, and want to be in a positive role model um, and perhaps mentoring role for future generations, but it can also definitely uh, increase stress significantly. Thank you, Dr. Romero, for that very nice overview. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research in understanding attrition and surgical training and the experiences of Latino and UIM residents? Yeah, these are uh, certainly some of the <clears throat> themes that have come up in uh, in my research. I work with residents who have left their training. Um, actually, unfortunately, most of what I have found is that it's primarily women who are leaving training. Um, I uh, have yet to decipher whether that means men aren't leaving training or whether that means that they're just not interested in participating in the research. But certainly we're seeing a, a, a sex disparity there. Some of the factors that actually are a little bit disheartening is that many times it seems that um, residents are going through these decisions somewhat alone. Uh, we always say uh, as 
students are considering careers in surgery, right? That if they love anything else, they should just go ahead and do something other than surgery. Um, and I think that this kind of mentality um, can sometimes carry through as people are having questions or doubts about their commitment to residency training, um, where they're not finding the right kind of encouragement or perhaps a sort of uh, soft stop and say, maybe you should reconsider, you're actually great at this. And this is just a small hurdle. Um, what I have uh, begun to understand is that a lot of times uh, residents are putting up with so much stress and burden, and they almost reach a, a boiling point where they're unable to sort of bounce back and 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 they just are, are kind of going to keep putting up with it or they're just going to completely give up. Um, you know, this is certainly... Um, as someone who really uh, hopes to inspire future generations of surgeons, it's definitely something that I'm loath to hear that it could take something as small as a kind word or a kind gesture. And I know how much this meant to me because I never thought I'd be a surgeon. And all it took was somebody saying, hey, Minerva, like, why aren't you going into surgery um, to really just sort of radically change my life? So I think that um, sometimes uh, it, it can be really something as simple as a, a small word of encouragement. And, and that's actually the sad part because it, it doesn't take very much for us to provide a little bit of kindness, right? Uh, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. As a Latina surgery resident, I'm very grateful for the work and the research that you do. Earlier, you mentioned some of the factors that may contribute to the high attrition rates. What are some of the protective factors that you have identified in your research? And how can residency programs incorporate this to better support UIM residents? One of the things that is, I think, often overlooked is how much these residents will bring in terms of leadership and work ethic. Very often, um, residents who come from underrepresented and medicine backgrounds are actually people who have worked in the past. And so they actually carry a tremendous amount of professionalism and work ethic that they bring, uh, which can be a very um, refreshing, uh, but also a great skill to help some of their co-residents. Um, in, in some regards, it can potentially be regarded as a, um, if it's a very hierarchical system, then that can certainly be a little bit of a detrimental factor. Um, if you're a little bit too independent for a, for a program that maybe um, expects a lot of regimented uh, communication. But I think most programs are really moving away from that. And so I think some of the protective factors really have to do with the experiences that these residents are bringing with them and that additional level of maturity. They already know how to juggle work and personal life and family commitments, um, as opposed to um, other folks who maybe are going more straight through and may not necessarily have that experience. And so I think it, it's important to recognize these qualities and, and really value them for, for what they're bringing to the table. I've, um, you mentioned how a lot of your research participants are not Latino surgeons specifically, but also women surgeons. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can comment on the experience of people who fit into maybe a couple of these different groups who we know are at higher risk of attrition and um, 
and and how that impacts the experience of residents. I you know I think there's a lot out there that we know that patients who fit into multiple of these underrepresented minority groups in the United States have have worse outcomes in a lot of in a lot of ways. But does that also apply? Do you think to this um, finding among surgical trainees? Definitely, I think that you know none of us are really defined by a single label, right? Everybody brings their different. Um, hats. You know, you're going to all these conferences now and you can pick your, you know, dog lover pin or coffee lover pin, right? And it would be great if we could just like put a pin on and, you know, and and, and it would be like the one way that you could identify today. Um, but I think that what, what we're really seeing is there's this commonality of issues that comes up where um, people are not feeling listened to, supported, respected, and they're afraid to speak up. They're maybe not receiving the right type of support. And in, in many ways, when they may be the only person that has a particular uh, demographic variable, whether that be sexual gender minority, whether that's being a woman, whether that's being of a particular religion or ethnicity, um, <clears throat> if there is no sympathetic ear, there's really no outlet um, there's no commiserating. There's nobody validating your experiences. And um, you can imagine that that can be particularly stressful in an already high stress environment when we're talking simply about the clinical work and the acuity of taking care of critically ill patients, patients with life threatening injuries. And so all of these factors really tend to sort of add to the to the weight that we all carry around. You know, <clears throat> this last year, Dr. Carla Pugh was the president of SBAS and she started something called the Backpack Challenge. And it's um, a, a relatively um, uh, simple idea that you could carry this backpack and each, each backpack will carry a, a series of water bottles that are meant to represent the different URAM groups um, based on the surgical societies that have been formed, like Society of Asian Academic Surgeons, AOSA, AWS, LSS, SBAS. And you're meant to, it's meant to signify this added burden that we're all carrying around on a day-to-day basis. And I think if we can um, bring that to the forefront of people's thoughts about not only am I a surgeon today, but I'm also facing challenges being a woman surgeon. And I'm also facing challenges being from my particular uh, racial or ethnic group. And maybe I'm also a parent and I have additional stressors, right? And so you know, I think at the end of the day, what I what I have come away with is that we really just got to go back to the humanism in medicine. That's great. Thank you. I um, am curious, you mentioned how in your own story, it was somebody just kind of having a small positive word about you should consider surgery. And that that was kind of what flipped the switch for you and made you consider this as a career path. We'll talk a little bit in future episodes about this pipeline issue that I, I know we've um, definitely have seen addressed um, before in, in other societies. But I'm curious your thoughts on on how we can better support and recruit both trainees and also faculty members when we're trying to build better departments that are more diverse and, and look more like the patient populations that we serve. I think that's an excellent question because the challenges definitely are going to 
proceed along the progression in medicine. So the issues faced by the pre-medical students will then move forward into the uh, what we call the undergraduate or really the medical school uh, realm. And then that will move into what we now call graduate medical education, right, which is residency and fellowship training. Um, and the majority of URIM surgeons are actually at the assistant or associate level of um, professorships, right? And so these are your junior faculty. Um, they're, when you look at the data, really, there are like single digits for the number of Latina professors in surgery, the number of Black women chairs of surgery, right? We just had Dr. K. Marie King, who became the first one appointed um, just this last year. And so there are very little opportunities for sponsorship. I think one of the things that's important to recognize is that while we have this tremendous amount of energy towards supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, we really got to think of it like a marathon. It's not something that's going to change overnight. Um, this is a commitment that departments have to make over a decade, right? If you think about the path of training one generation of surgeons, you're taking them from medical school through a five to seven to eight year residency training process, plus minus a fellowship and getting them to junior faculty level is really a decade. So I think it's important to recognize that and then set realistic expectations and also provide the appropriate resources. Um, and, and, and recognizing that also helps folks to see that I can, for example, I, I cannot mentor all the Latina medical students and residents in the U.S. Um, by myself. Not, you know, I, I would love to. Um, but it really takes a village. And in, and in this particular case, right, I was mentored by mostly men. I was mentored by zero Latino surgeons. Um, and, and I thank those men tremendously. Um, but it really is important to have that um, open mentality that I'm going to take that effort to invest in someone's future and I can't expect somebody else to do it. And if I'm committed to promoting diversity, equity, and, and inclusion in surgery, I have to also look at who am I sponsoring? Who am I mentoring? Who am I speaking up for uh, when something comes up? And I can tell you that as part of, um, as part of the things that, that have come up in, in, in my research is that, you know, the residents are well aware of how Differential treatment can happen amongst faculty. They are very aware of when the women surgeons, for example, are not being treated with the same respect, when perhaps their judgment is being questioned, when perhaps they're facing harsher consequences. Um, and, and these are all factors that really um, become detrimental in their own view of what they can expect to see as their career is coming to, to fruition and what they can anticipate they will be facing. You mentioned how it takes a village to kind of raise somebody from undergraduate medical education all the way through becoming a faculty member. And, and you also mentioned that it's it seems like it's a really small village that we're working with here. So I'm wondering as as you've kind of come up in this in this system and and have become a mentor now yourself to to many residents. 
how do you think we can best support faculty members who are mentoring and, and putting in real hours and real work and effort into these processes? How can departments support those kind of initiatives and those people who are really doing the bulk of this work? Yeah, I think a lot of faculty right now are being asked to step more actively into these roles. And one of the things that's important as department chairs consider these asks, um, as they're asking their faculty members to perhaps spend an extra hour on the uh, DEI committee, when they're perhaps asking them to take their Saturday morning and participate in the um, high school mentoring program, and they're asking their faculty members to spend an extra hour um, providing support to a resident who maybe faced a microaggression based on their race or their gender. You know, these are very, um, very often they're thought of as um, acts of citizenship that are expected as part of just being a good uh, faculty member. But what is not being recognized is that the proportion in which UIM faculty are expected to participate in these initiatives is significantly disproportionate to, for example, a white male colleague. Um, And while I think it would be great if all of my white male colleagues spoke up at every DEI meeting, you know, unfortunately, that's not actually what we're seeing. I, I, I often tell this story that in 2020, between 2020 and 2022, I was a member of six committees focusing on DEI across my individual institutional committees, national organizations. And it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because I was very thankful to be given a platform, to be given a seat at the table, to be able to speak up. Um, for a voice that is very often not represented. Um, But by the same token, did I really need to be on all of those committees when I'm thinking about how is this going to play out at the promotions and tenure committee? Are they going to value this work in the same way that they would value maybe me spending those additional six hours (laughs) Um, on writing a grant application or publishing another research study, or, you know, maybe just banging out a couple of additional cases, you know, maybe I spend a little additional time writing uh, a better clinic note. And so there are a lot of um, tit for tat, I guess, that we do, but it doesn't necessarily always translate into work that is valued by the department's. You have demonstrated significant commitment to addressing ADI issues in surgical training and at the faculty level. And now we're more interested in learning about um, your uh, involvement with the Latino Surgical Society. You became one of the founding members in 2017. Can you tell us what motivated the creation of this organization? Sure. Um, You know, the Latino Surgical Society, um, It really came up as an idea. Um, There are four of us that were the founding members, and um, all of us met as residents. Um, As it so happened, um, Gesser Ortega, Joseph Lopez, and myself happened to be on call uh, one night where 
we were the entire surgical team, the entire trauma team for that hospital. And we kind of just went through and thought, you know, I can probably name um, in one hand, right? Joey said, I can probably name in one hand the number of Latino plastic surgeons across the entire US, right? And Gesser and myself similarly, right? Like we probably, if, if there is a Latino surgeon to be identified, I probably know them or know of them. Um, and, and really, we all had benefited from this, um, I call it the, the LMSA Familia. As a medical student, I was part of an organization called Latino Medical Student Association. And it was a tremendous um, family, really. It felt like family of, of peers that, that were facing similar issues and similar fears and similar challenges. And so we really thought, you know, if we ever want to see a difference, you know, we got to build that network up to move into the residency space, to move into the surgical workplace. And um, Joe Fernandez uh, is, is the fourth founder. He and I also met while we were residents um, during our research time. And, and he expressed um, certainly the same interest of, I want to be able to provide mentorship to future generations so that, you know, so that we're not the only ones. So um, LSS really started as, as the brain uh, power of four surgical residents. And we <clears throat> worked actually since about um, 2013, 2014, worked on a series of meetings, white papers, until we finally were able to establish um, the organization with formal bylaws um, as a formal 501c3 in 2017. It's amazing and making me really uh, want to gear things up for the remainder of my research time. <laughs> Um, I'm curious. So, so LSS has grown substantially since the early days. It sounds like when it was you and and four co-residents just talking about how little this community was and wanting to build it further. Um, and I'm curious about how you all support Latino trainees at this point in time, and 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 how that plays out for you guys currently. I think we have tried to tackle. Um, building that community and in a few different ways, right? And and I think we we certainly recognize that the majority of LSS members are are kind of at my level of being junior faculty and below. Um, so we've really tried to um, tackle one, getting people just aware that there are generations of Latino surgeons. So um, one of the things that we started to do um, started out with just creating our social media presence and being able to provide positive role models, right? And, and we all know that the kids, the high, the high school students, the pre-med students, right? They're all on social media and they needed to see um, role models. They needed to see what they in the future could be. And so it started out with campaigns about um, featuring Latino Surgical Society members. Um, as we started to grow, we also started to have a presence at specific uh, national conferences where we could congregate, uh, where we could um, invite speakers to share their work on a on a specific um, disease, uh, what how that disease impacted Latinos. Um, and again, building this sort of sense of community and family. And 
the the opportunity to network and to be able to find people who who shared similar experiences. Um, as you know, COVID kind of put a, a, a really um, huge hard stop to everyone. Um, but we really decided to sort of just roll with it. And like everyone else, we converted to virtual programming. And I think that that actually for us was uh, a little bit of, of, of a blessing in disguise because we, we sort of had a little bit more of a captive audience and we were able to gain more visibility, not just amongst the Latino surgeons and, and, and medical students, um, but also amongst everyone else in the surgical and medical community, right? And so we were able to um, gain support of departmental chairs um, who eventually became institutional members to support our organization. We were able to collaborate with <clears throat> leaders and other surgical societies. Um, and so all of these things really helped us to gain momentum. You know, now we have a series of webinars, which we call Inside the Operating Room. We sort of model that a little bit uh, after Inside the Actor Studio. And we really aim to give like intimate, in-depth interviews, bringing a, a, a human face of Latino surgeons who have been, you know, highly accomplished um, to, to really, again, bring this positive role models, bring the sort of advice that you wish you had at your institution, but at least it's accessible now on YouTube. And so that was one of our more successful um, ventures that we rolled out during COVID. We also started to do webinars aimed at helping uh, residents in training. So we have uh, Pass the Baton, which is intern to intern advice or how to, success how to successfully start um, your residency. We also recently rolled out a series called Sewing Success. Um, of course, these are all being themed along surgical <laughs> names, um, but Sewing Success is um, aimed at helping residents prepare for fellowship and be able to provide access to um, other fellows who have successfully matched. And now more recently, we're actually starting to create, uh, we're rolling out, um, Alina, you can probably chime in a little bit on this, but it's a brand new initiative that we're calling Cafecito con LSS. It uh, translates as um, having coffee with LSS and uh, and Alina um, and Jorge Zarate were um, invited to help us co-lead. They actually stepped up to co-lead this initiative. Yeah. Can you tell us about that, Alina, and, and what that is going to be like? Uh, definitely. In an effort to foster community and collaboration, the Latino Surgical Society is hosting Cafecito with LSS, or Con LSS. Uh, this is a monthly online social for Latino surgery residents and fellows. Um, this is an initiative that I'm co-leading with Dr. Jorge Sarate Rodriguez, um, who Dr. Romero mentioned. He's a surgery resident at Washington University. If you're interested in joining or future Cafecitos Con LSS, you can find more details and the link to register in the LSS social media platforms. Yeah, and we'll include that link in our show notes today. Um, I think, you know, you've mentioned a lot of this building community as a really um, strong result of developing the LSS, not just among the Latino surgeons who are part of it, but also among departments who have signed on to support the LSS, as well as these cross collaborations between other affinity organizations. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've worked with other organizations to expand, expand your own reach um, as, an, as a group uh, and really expand your own community? 
Yeah, absolutely. We um, have been tremendously um, lucky uh, to have the support of other organizations. I want to say um, we really acknowledge the support that we've received from the Association of Women Surgeons, from the Society of Asian Academic Surgeons, from the Society of Black Academic Surgeons, um, and the Association of Out Surgeons and Allies. Um, all of these are organizations that have uh, represented the voices of URIM and surgery. Um, we um, also recognize that missing amongst the voices here is um, AAIP or ANAMS, right? Because we know that there's less than 1% of Native American, American Indian um, physicians and surgeons. Um, but nonetheless, these are all organizations that have provided support in um, helping spread the word amongst their members and helping amplify our messages on social media in direct collaborations where we have liaisons, for example, to the um, AWS, where we have um, direct mentorship that is actually has been provided in the past by other organizations on how we could grow and learning from the challenges that they faced initially, you know, being able to sort of tag on to the programming that they have maybe more infrastructure to support when we were still really at a much earlier stage and didn't necessarily have the resources. One of the initiatives that we're really proud to have uh, rolled out was a DEI award with the Association of Women Surgeons. And that really partnered up with all the organizations to provide a scholarship, um, an award for residents and students to, to participate in the AWS conference and to have those students be selected individually by SBAS, by SAS, by LSS, um, and um, actually also by the Association for Academic Surgery. Um, so I think this, this is one of the, the sort of examples of a way in which collaboration can really help not only um, to to grow ourselves, but really to create that cross uh, pollination of ideas and collaboration and being able to, to share that perspective and that shared experience amongst organizations. You mentioned before we started recording about how improving things for one group tends to improve things for other groups. I'm wondering if we can kind of finish on a note that, that um, with your thoughts about that. Definitely. I think that you can, we can all recognize that traditionally the workplaces have been across all industries more uh, tailored to the to the needs of men or perhaps of the what we used to call the breadwinner of the family, right? And as more women moved into the workspace, there had to be accommodations made, for example, um, for maternity leave. Um, and for additional types of modifications, we can all recognize that family and being a, a parent is not necessarily only an issue for women. Um, and in the past, uh, I know that many surgeons, for example, used to take pride in having one or two divorces under their belt as a notch of pride, right, in being a good surgeon. But, but we now recognize that perhaps that's not a priority for everyone. And so we have transitioned from a workplace that didn't really support parenting to a change that allowed, right, for maternity leave. And more recently, you know that 
Um, even the American Board of Surgery issued a statement and specific policies around parenting, right? And, and just recognizing that change in the wording where it's no longer just maternity leave, but it's parental leave. And it's recognizing the different ways in which someone can be a parent, whether that's an adoptive parent, uh, whether that's a birthing parent, whether that is a supporting uh, parent. And so I think that all of these um, are examples in which one small change actually ultimately benefited more than one group of people. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your perspectives. Um, just to end this episode, can you tell us how students, residents, fellows, or faculty who are interested in joining LSSS or contributing to the mission uh, can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for the invitation. And anyone who's interested in learning more about the Latino Surgical Society, you can visit our website, www.latinosurgicalsociety.org. You can also find us on social media. That includes Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Our name on all of those is going to be at Latino Surgery. And you can also find us on YouTube where you can watch prior episodes of all of the webinar series that we mentioned earlier during the episode. Well, thank you to both of you uh, for joining us today on Behind the Knife. Hopefully this conversation is just the first of many going forward as we start to make moves and improve this space further for our trainees and for faculty. Uh, So I appreciate both of y'all's time. Absolutely. Thank you again for the invitation to participate. All right. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.